All right, well, we are doing hermeneutics. Anybody remember what hermeneutics means? Yeah, how to study the Bible, how to interpret Scripture. And we, we finished last week our study on bibliology. We looked at inspiration, perspicuity, and inerrancy. Today we're going to move on to a, another topic, and that's the topic of meaning. What is meaning? How many of you have been to a Bible study? Well, good. All right. We have a biblical church. I like it. How many of you have been to a Bible study? Hopefully you won't raise your hand for this one. And the leader of the Bible study sits down, opens up their Bible, and then reads the text, and then says to you, what does this text mean to you? Hopefully you haven't been to one of those recently. The person asking the question is looking for you to interpret the text. But they're looking for you to interpret the text by describing how the text affects you. How does it change your thinking? How does it convict you? How does it conjure up a desire in you to change? Does it encourage you? Is it a discouragement? Now, when you think about that, you realize that everyone's going to answer that question differently, right? And in fact, the person you ask, if you ask that question to a person, they may answer that question differently depending on the time of day and how their day is going. It might affect you differently because you ate something that wasn't good for lunch. Asking what the text means to you sounds absurd and ridiculous, but it's actually a method of interpretation that is used often today. And not just by people who don't know what they're talking about. We're talking about scholars who publish books. Why would anyone use this method to interpret the Bible? The reason they use this method is because of how they answer this, the questions, what is meaning and what is the source of meaning? That's why they're willing to use that form of interpretation. Postmodernism says that all truth is relative. That truth is defined by the individual. And thus, you can have a truth that's not my truth. And we can both embrace truth, but they're two opposite things. This new hermeneutic is the hermeneutic of postmodernism. The text is like truth. It means whatever the reader says it means. Take, for instance, uh, David Kleins in his book, The Theme of the Pentateuch. He said this, Today, since I think that we have moved into a postmodern age, I would be much more careful in speaking of meaning. I would not now be speaking of the meaning of the Pentateuch, nor claiming that the theme encapsulates the meaning of the work, as if there was only one meaning for the Pentateuch. Notice he connects his interpretation of the Bible to being in a postmodern age. And postmodernism is now how he defines the text. Mr. Kleins cannot define the singular meaning of the text because of postmodernism. We live in a postmodern age, and therefore, truth is relative, the meaning of the text is relative. For Mr. Kleins, the meaning of the text doesn't come from the text. It comes from the readers. He continues, Nowadays, I tend rather to believe that texts do not have meaning in themselves, and that what we call meaning is something that comes into being at the meeting point of text and reader. The text only has meaning when someone reads it. That text affects them in some way. That's when the text actually has meaning, according to Mr. Kleins. 
D.A. Carson explains the goal of this interpretive method. And he says the goal here is not actually to explain and understand the text. D.A. Carson, it is not the objective meaning of the text that is the goal, since the text is considered to be no more objective than the interpreter. The goal is that the moment of encounter between text and interpreter in which the meaning occurs or takes place, that is, it is the encounter between text and interpreter in which the interpreter hears and responds to some claim upon his person. The whole goal of interpreting the text is so somehow I can change just by my, how the text influences me. The meaning of the text depends upon how the text impacts me as a reader. Does that sound like a valid way to read a text? The end result is that you can have a text of multiple different meanings just depending upon who reads it. Genesis 1-1 can mean a million different things because a million different people can read the text and come to their own conclusions about whatever they want it to mean. Mr. Kleins again. If that is so, then meaning is reader-dependent and reader-specific. And there are, in principle, as many meanings as there are readers. This is really no more than what we commonly say when we confess that it doesn't mean that for me. Allowing that the same words may have different meanings for different readers. I give you the quotes because I want you to understand I'm not making this up. There's actually people who publish books and this is what they write. The end result of saying that the text, the meaning of the text is whatever it does to me is to say that the text means everything. It can mean anything. D.A. Carson. Obviously, that might be a different thing for a different person or different things for the same person at different times or different things for different generations of students of Scripture. This is postmodernism being brought into the church and applied to biblical interpretation. Mr. Klein's again. But making it into a theory of meaning and integrating it into our interpretational praxis moves us out of the modern world where texts have meanings into the postmodern world where the meaning of meaning is decidedly problematic. So why does he do it? Because, you know, that word meaning, we can't really define it. It doesn't really mean anything, so we can make the text mean whatever we want it to mean. It's not just that he thinks that meaning is in flux. Mr. Kleins has taken his, this postmodern hermeneutic so far that he rejects the idea that the text has a fixed meaning. He completely rejects it and says there's no real fixed meaning to the text. It is not that these readers are all doing their best to find the meaning embedded in a fixed text, but that the text itself is relative to the readers themselves and is in a way created and recreated in the process of their reading of it. I am tempted to maintain that there is no text without readers. That is, nothing that can meaningfully be called a text. It is a similar question whether there can be sound without hearers. There's no sound without hearers. That's postmodernism. Yeah, I mean, if there's no meaning to the text, why are you writing? This hermeneutic renders every command in Scripture mute and powerless. It renders his book a pointless waste of time. There's no point in buying the book, because it doesn't mean what it says. If meaning is dependent upon the reader, and the text does not become real without the reader, then you cannot tell me that my interpretation of the text is wrong. 
I can come to any interpretation that I want, and there is no way for you to tell me I'm wrong. Nor can you turn around and demand that I listen to or read your book and tell me that I need to hear what your book says because I can make your book mean whatever I want it to mean. David Kleins actually agrees. Who is to say, I would now ask, what meanings are and are not legitimate? I myself will, of course, resist any interpretation I myself cannot hold or cannot in some way adapt to my own interpretation, but I feel now that I have to accept that my interpretations are relative to myself and I cannot rule out those of others as being illegitimate. Every interpretation is now valid. Did you have a question? Yeah, the consequences of this are pretty serious, aren't they? Because if every interpretation is valid, well, you don't need pastors, you don't need teachers, you don't need to go to church, you might as well put your Bible away because there's no point in reading it. You can just come up with whatever you want. Because a, a written book is just language in written form, right? And is, if meaning is determined by the reader, then the meaning of what I'm saying right now is determined by everybody listening, not the guy speaking it. And when you speak to me, your meaning is not what you said, it's whatever I think it is, or whatever I want it to be. Mr. Klein says, well, your interpretation is not illegitimate, but I'm going to refuse to follow it because I don't like it. Welcome to postmodernism. Do whatever is right in your eyes. That's what this is. Mr. Klein's again. But in the end, the interpretation that we hold to will be the one we ourselves judge to be right or the best. And so will everyone else's. No one can judge for us, and no one can say in a postmodern age that some interpretations are illegitimate and others are legitimate. You wonder why people today hate talking about doctrine? They refuse to talk to you about doctrine because doctrine is the exact opposite of this. Doctrine says there is absolute truth and we're going to hold to the absolute truth. Postmodernism says all truth is relative and it's whatever I want it to mean. And so why would I ever talk about doctrine? This view of meaning leads you to say and believe whatever you want about God. You can make any theology you want. Remember, the Bible is divine revelation. It is God revealing his will, his nature, his works. And if you can make the Bible mean anything you want, you can say anything you want about God. D.A. Carson, it follows then that the new hermeneutic pursues what is true for me at the expense of what is true. Theology proper becomes impossible. Theology proper is talking about the nature of God. This allows you to create a God of your own imagination and use the biblical text to justify it. Well, kind of use the biblical text. As many of you have already said, if the text means whatever we want it to mean, then the text has no real meaning. And if the text has no real meaning, then God has not truly revealed himself to you. We have no way to know him, serve him, be pleasing to him. We have no means to tell others about him. Our evangelism is now pointless and futile. Because you can go and tell someone else about Jesus, and they'll just say, well, that's not my interpretation of the text. That's not what I think about it. 
If the Bible doesn't have a fixed meaning, then the Bible has absolutely no authority. Yes, sir. Good distinction. Yes, Carson is not advocating this. He's actually arguing against it. Um, Mr. Kleins is arguing for it. And I'm, I'm giving Dr. Carson as, a, as the offset. Yes, ma'am. I don't know his background very well. I know he wrote a commentary in the World Biblical Commentary on Job, but I don't know his full background. I think he's a professor somewhere. That doesn't help, I know. The goal of hermeneutics is not for me to just to decide what I think the text means. The goal of hermeneutics is to come to the meaning of the text. And in order to do that, we must first understand that the idea of meaning. What is meaning? What or who is the source of meaning? Where do I find the meaning? So let's just start with a basic definition. What is meaning? What is meaning? This is from uh, Dr. Clausen. He says, meaning refers to the con content of communication which a writer or speaker consciously willed to convey by the words, shareable symbols, and grammar, shareable structures he used. Meaning refers to the content of communication which the writer or speaker consciously willed to convey. Language was given to man by God to enable him to exchange his thoughts and ideas in a systematic and understandable way. Language itself, if you look at the definition of language, the expression of ideas by words or significant art, articulate sounds for the communication of thoughts. When two or more persons customarily annex the same sounds to the same ideas, the expression of these sounds by one person communicates his ideas to another. It's inherent in the idea of language. Language is for communicating thoughts. Language is a collection of sounds. At the foundation of language are small little units called phonemes. A phoneme is just a basic singular sound that you make. So like ah in apple or t in today. Those are phonemes. And if you just have one of them, if I just walk up to you and say, ah, doesn't really help you, does it? Because we have no meaning attached to ah, and it doesn't really explain anything, does it? But when you take these, word, these phonemes and you bring them together, you can make complex sounds we call words. And those words have agreed upon meaning. And by vocalizing a complex sound, you're you are able to express your thoughts and your desires in a way that other people can understand. Because you have an agreed-upon meaning and definition of what those sounds are to communicate. That's why you teach your children to speak. Have you ever heard someone look at their kids? Maybe you've said this to your kids. Use your words. Because when your baby's first born, your baby has no way to communicate what the problem is. They have no way to tell you what they want or need. And so what do they do when they want something? They just cry. And you have to try to interpret the screams and figure out what's wrong. The child lacks the ability to communicate his or her desires and needs. But as the child matures, by the time they're 12, you hope 
they're not still doing that form of communication. Instead of crying, you want the two or three-year-old to say, I'm hungry, I'm thirsty, or I'm hurt. I've even seen some parents, even at small babies, teach their children sign language. Some of you know, I want more. That's an agreed-upon symbol, just like any word. The only reason the child will use words is because they have a need or a want they hope that you can meet. That's the point of language, is to communicate your thoughts and your desires and your needs. But if meaning is derived from the reader or the hearer, then what's the point of using the language? If the child does this and you say, well, I know we agreed what this means, but I'm going to supplement my own meaning for it, why should the child even do it? If, as the reader or listener, I have to supply my own meaning, then we're right back to the baby crying. You might as well just make indistinct sounds and let them come up with whatever they want. Whatever they want. At that point, the speaker or author never has the opportunity to actually communicate their thoughts, their desires, or their intentions. The meaning of a spoken word or a written word is what the author intended when he wrote it. Dr. Clausen's definition, that's what it's saying. That writer, that speaker chose those specific words. They structured them in a specific way, used specific grammar with the hope of communicating a specific meaning. And they did that so that you, the reader or the listener, would receive the meaning they intended to convey. But if the text doesn't have meaning, if language can just be whatever you want it to be, you can put your earplugs in and burn all your books this morning. Because they don't actually communicate. The language becomes useless. You might as well go into a room by yourself and just start talking to yourself. Because you have no ability to communicate your thoughts and your intentions to anyone for any reason. The language doesn't communicate anymore. And by the way, if you decide, well, I am going to start talking, if the meaning of your language is determined by me, I can make you say anything I want. And now you have no control over what you say. Let me say it another way. If the meaning of a language is determined by the reader or the listener, your thoughts, your opinions, your needs, and your desires are irrelevant. All that matters is what I think and what I want. And you can do that in the reverse. Does that sound like a biblical way to look at the world? This is the self-centered hermeneutic that focuses entirely on self. Language is intended to convey the message of the speaker. And when you come to the text, when you come to any text, the Bible, an email, an employment contract, your mortgage contract, it's absolutely irrelevant what you think the text means or what you want it to mean. The question is, what did the author intend when he wrote it? And that's the goal of hermeneutics, is to get to authorial intent. What did the author intend when he wrote that book? What message was the author trying to communicate with these words? And this is just the 
plain, common-sense definition of the word. That if there weren't people out there twisting this, we wouldn't spend 30 minutes talking about it. It's just plain common sense. David Kleins actually recognizes that this is just plain common sense. He said this, The postmodern turn has put an end to the modern idea that the meaning of the text is the meaning intended by the author. That is, no doubt, the common sense understanding of meaning. He recognizes the common sense understanding of meaning is whatever the author intended. But it's only because of his postmodernism that he rejects it. The meaning is the message the author intended to convey, but that has some logical and necessary results. If you embrace that, it has some results. If the text means what the author intended it to mean, then the words that he uses can only have one meaning. It can only mean one thing. If I say I am hungry, what does that mean? It means I'm hungry. It means exactly what it says. And you cannot change that meaning and make it mean something else. It has only one meaning. What I mean when I say I'm hungry is that I'm experiencing physical symptoms from not receiving food. You might be able to explain I'm hungry in different words, but the message in the end will be the same. It means what it means. There are not multiple meanings to any text. There are not hidden meanings in a text. There are not secret meanings to a text. Nor, there are, nor are there meanings of a text derived from something other than the words used. Let me explain what that means. Um, if I go to Revelation 20, the meaning of that passage is determined by the words used in Revelation 20. I can't go to the book of Hebrews to find out what John meant in Revelation 20. I begin in Revelation 20, and then I can use other biblical writers to support or affirm what John said, but I will learn only what John meant by John's words in that passage. The meaning of the text is the text, and if you don't have the meaning of that text, you don't know what it means. The author regardless of how long ago he wrote, remains the authority on his text. He decides, or she decides, what the text means. Uh, Gordon Fee, a text cannot mean what it could never have meant for its original readers or hearers. Or to put it in a positive way, the true meaning of the biblical text for us is what God originally intended to mean when it was first spoken or written. What God intended it to mean. I want to take you into the Bible. Um, go over to Genesis 1. Genesis 1, verse 26. Then God said, Let us make man in our own image, according to our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the sky, and over the cattle, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. God created man in his own image, in the image of God, and created him male and female. He created them. God blessed them, and God said to them, Notice you have the creation of the first man and woman. And then immediately after creation, what does God do? He speaks to them in a language. They were created with the ability to understand. The ability to understand written language. What did he say to them? Be fruitful and multiply. And fill the earth and subdue it. 
and rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over every living thing that moves on the earth. God now gives them a command. Be fruitful, multiply, rule the earth. Did God mean what he said here? Of course he did. And you know he meant it because when you go through the rest of Genesis, it's repeated multiple times. Be fruitful and multiply. Go over to Genesis chapter 2. We have another angle on the creation account. Verse 16. The Lord God commanded the man, saying, From any tree of the garden you may eat freely, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat from it you will surely die. Did God mean what he said there? How do you know God meant what he actually said? Yeah, when they disobeyed what he said, he held them accountable for it. He ensured that what he said was actually true. You can't take the text and make it mean whatever you want. This is a big deal because there is a teaching, there's an idea out there that says the text can have multiple meanings, and it's not the postmodern hermeneutic. It's called census plinier. Census plinier comes from, um, a Latin, is a Latin term. It means fuller intent or fuller meaning. This idea is not a Protestant idea. It was developed by a Roman Catholic, uh, Andrea Fernandez. And it was formulated, you might say, it was brought out by a guy named Raymond Brown. Raymond Brown um, is a modern Roman Catholic scholar and a well-known commentator. If you read a whole lot of commentaries, you'll see this guy's published everywhere. Census Plinier argues that God did not give a full meaning, his full intention in every passage. He didn't make it clear in every passage. That God's meaning must be derived from somewhere other than a given text. That is to say, you have two authors on any text, right? Take Romans. Romans 1 was written by who? Paul and God. Census Plinier says that in some text you'll receive God, the, you'll receive the human intention, but you won't receive God's intention. And that God intends something other than what the text says. Raymond Brown, let us apply the term census plinier to that meaning of his text, which by the normal rules of exegesis would not have been within his clear awareness or intention, but which by other criteria we can determine as having been intended by God. The normal rules and methods of interpretation don't use those because you can't get to God's meaning by using those rules. You have to go somewhere else because the human author was not aware of God's intention when he wrote it. And so you can't go to the human author's writings because he doesn't know. And so we're supposed to assign a meaning to the text that is not in the text. And this is most often used in the New Testament and how the New Testament uses the Old Testament. When the New Testament quotes Old Testament passages, 
that's where they do it. Raymond Brown updated his view on census plenier. He says it is that additional deeper meaning intended by God, but not clearly intended by the human author, which is seen to exist in the words of the biblical text or group of texts or even a whole book when they are studied in light of further revelation or developments in the understanding of revelation. So here he updates his meaning. And this was more common today than his first quote. And that is, I can go to an Old Testament passage, get one meaning from that. That's the human author's meaning. And then I go into the New Testament, and I find a New Testament author that quotes it. And he's using it, it seems, in a different way. Therefore, the, the New Testament author is giving a new meaning to the Old Testament text. A meaning that the Old Testament writer knew nothing about. This is often done with how the New Testament writers use Old Testament passages. And I want to give you an example. Hosea 11, verse 1, and Matthew 2, verse 15. Now, before I start, there's a huge, huge controversy on how Matthew's using Hosea 11, 1. And so today, I'm going to give you all the views and tell you everything about the controversy. No, I'm not. <laughs> we don't have time for that. I'm only using this not to settle every dispute about this, these two. I'm only using this to show you the danger of census plenier, okay? There are a lot of really good views out there that you can go and study. We just don't have time to go through all of them. But let's look at Matthew 2.15 and Hosea 11.1. Matthew 2.15, this is right after the birth narratives. And he, that would be Joseph, remained there with Mary and Jesus until the death of Herod in order that what had been spoken of by the Lord through the prophet would be fulfilled, saying, out of Egypt I called my son. Notice LSB has that last sentence there, out of Egypt I called my son. They have it in all caps. That's because he's quoting the Old Testament. And that is a quote directly out of Hosea 11, verse 1. Hosea 11, when Israel was youth, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. And what Census Plenier would say is that Matthew has changed the meaning or has supplied a new meaning, that's a better way to say it, has supplied a new meaning for Hosea 11 verse 1. Now, first of all, Hosea 11 1, who is it talking about? Anybody know? Israel. The passages before and the passages immediately after make it very clear Hosea's focus is the nation of Israel. Matthew 2 verse 15, who is he talking about? Jesus, Joseph, Mary, and Jesus. Census Plenier would say that Matthew is indicating that Hosea 11, verse 1, is talking about Jesus. That's the divine intention. Hosea 11, 1 is now about Jesus. If God intended Hosea 11, 1 to be referring to Jesus, should we now read Hosea 11, 1 differently? If Matthew's intention was to say, Hosea 11, 1, there's man's intention and God's intention, and God's intention is different than what the text says, should we now read Hosea 11.1, 1, and out of Egypt I called my son Jesus? And if you say, no, we shouldn't change the meaning of the text there in Hosea 11, then which intention should we apply? Hosea meant Israel, and since the Splinter says God meant Jesus. Whose intention, whose meaning should we apply in Hosea 11.1? 1? I'm sorry? God's intention. Well, since the Plenier says God's intention says it's Jesus. Hosea's, yeah. 
So if we use Hosea's and we embrace census plenier, then we have the problem because now we're rejecting God's intention. But if I take Jesus and I use census plenier and I put Jesus into Hosea 11.1 and I try to read Hosea 10 and 11, no longer makes sense. Do you see how confusing this is? If census plenier provides a fuller meaning, a meaning which the text of Hosea does not provide, which meaning am I supposed to use? The human or the divine? Census plenier does nothing but create confusion. How many of you are confused by that? It's confusing. Because the text doesn't mean what it says. It requires that you derive a meaning from the text without using the text. Census plenier creates more problems than it resolves. Just give you a couple. There's a couple questions that are created when you divide the two intentions. First one, which passages of Scripture have a divine intention that does not match the human intention? If there's two intentions, God's intention and the human intention in Hosea 11, and I don't get to learn about God's intention until later, what, what other passages does that happen in? All Scripture's got to breathe. We're going to get to that. Where's the list of these passages that I have to now look for meaning outside of the passage? And most advocates of census plenier will tell you this only applies to the Old Testament and the New Testament's use of the Old. But on what basis do they make that claim? If God was willing to write through a human author and not give his intention in the text, why couldn't he do that in the New Testament? Why is it only in the Old Testament? And if you get there, then you have to ask, well, how do I know Matthew 2.15 is giving me God's intention? It's a slippery slope. Next question. Who determines which meaning is applied to which passage? We've already kind of tried to work that out. If Hosea 11.1 has a human intention and a divine intention, and they're not the same, who decides which one I apply? If Hosea 11.1 can refer to Israel and it can refer to Jesus, when I read through Hosea, which one do I use? I don't know either. Roman Catholics have an answer. What's the Roman Catholic answer to that question? Whatever Rome says, yeah. Whatever the infallible magisterium declares, that's what you're to believe. And by the way, they came up and they have four different interpretations of every passage. You thought two was confusing. Who determines the meaning of the text? Next question. If the text does not convey the divine intention, what prevents wild and strange interpretations? Census Plinier says that God's intention is not found in the immediate text. Well, if God's intention is not found in the text and I have no objective way to find it in the text, I can make this text mean anything I want. Walter Kaiser the words of Scripture may have been the catalyst which primed the pump and perhaps hastened an individual reception of a heavenly revelation or something of that sort, but by no method of exegesis can the words of any passage be proven to yield this fuller sense. This is admitted by definition. God's meanings, supposedly obtained by census plenier, cannot be drawn from Scripture. Again, we get back to if the text doesn't mean what it says, I can make it mean anything that I want. And if you have no way to point to the text and tell me my interpretation is wrong, I can come up with any heresy in the world. John Owen, 
If the Scripture has more than one meaning, it has no meaning at all. If since it's plenty is true, there is no meaning to the text. Yes, ma'am. Yeah, that's that's one of the challenges. Um, a lot of the times you see that, like even in Matthew two, where he says this prophecy is fulfilled, and one of the the key issues there is when you look at the word fulfilled, what does that word actually mean? Because it doesn't always mean direct prophetic fulfillment, right? It's not always saying this is a prophecy that is being fulfilled as in it's coming to pass. There are other meanings there. My goal here is to show you that that doesn't mean that that text has more than one meaning, right? However, the, the New Testament writer is using the Old Testament passage. He's not changing the meaning, and he's not adding a meaning that was never intended by that passage. The Old Testament writer and the New Testament writer both clearly communicate their meaning, and one does not change the other. The Holy Spirit's not going to change or alter what he said before. He might add to what he said before, but he won't change it. Does that answer your question? Okay. Since this plenary gives cover to those who want to use Scripture to promote bad theology, like I said, it just brings confusion. Uh, Milton Terry, but the moment we admit the principle that portions of Scripture contain an occult or double sense, we introduce an element of uncertainty in the sacred volume and unsettle all scientific interpretation. If any text can have multiple meanings, you cannot interpret the text anymore. It's not possible. Fourth question. It's the last question. If the text does not convey the divine intention, this is what Ricky was getting at, in what sense is the text inspired? Inspiration says that God wrote his words through a human author. Every single word is inspired. Every single word is breathed out by God. And God is behind every word. Every single word comes from him through a human being. That human being wrote according to his own style, which is why when you read Paul, he doesn't read the same as reading John. And John doesn't read like Moses. They wrote with their own style. The human was fully involved. They wrote according to their own style, their own choice of words, their own choice of grammar. They used their own line of reasoning and rationality. Right. Yeah. If it has multiple meanings and it brings confusion, it's not very profitable, is it? They have differences in style between the books because the human authors were different people. But if census plenier is true, when Hosea wrote Hosea 11.1, 1, then he had absolutely no knowledge of what God intended to say. He had no understanding of the meaning of his own words. Hosea now becomes a puppet who's writing for God, and he has no clue what he means. Dictating God's words, which would only be understood at a latter time. By the way, that would be like 800 years later. The human, at this point, is not actually involved in a written language. In what sense is that inspiration? The only way you can preserve inspiration is to recognize that God wrote through a human author, and the human author wrote what he desired and what God desired. That those two wrote the same thing, that they both intended to say the same thing. This is known as divine concursus. 
give you all the theology terms, divine concursus. That is to say, one intention matches the other intention. B.B. Warfield explains it this way. The fundamental principle of this conception is that the whole of Scripture is the product of divine activities which enter it. However, not by superseding the activities of the human author. So God doesn't overwhelm or override the human author. But confluently with them. So the scriptures are the joint product of divine and human activities. Hosea 11.1 is the product of both Hosea and God. The human was not overpowered. He was a full participant in writing. In the writing, B.B. Warfield again, working harmoniously together to the production of a writing which is not divine here and human there, but at once divine and human in every part, in every word, in every particular. There's not some verses of Scripture, this is just a human speaking, with no knowledge of divine intention, and then there's other verses of Scripture where it's human and divine, and then there's others that are just divine. No, Every word is inspired. Every word comes from a human author and from God. He continues, Therefore, the whole Bible is recognized as human, the free product of human effort in every part and word. And at the same time, the whole Bible is recognized as divine, the word of God, his utterances of which he is in the truest sense, the author. Every text is written by God and by man. And every text has how many meanings? Just one. Okay? I'm going to add another layer of complexity. Significance. Significance refers to how that single meaning of a passage will affect some other issue. You might say significance refers to the implications of a passage. What are the implications? Of the text. The prophetic writers, the prophets, understood precisely what they wrote. They understood the prophecies that they were writing. They didn't understand all the implications, the results, the effects, the circumstances of how those prophecies would be carried out. How would it all play out? A good example of this is in 1 Peter 1. Verse 10, we looked at this recently in the men's and women's Bible studies. 1 Peter 1, verse 10, concerning this salvation, speaking of the salvation brought to us through Christ, the prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you made careful searches and inquiries. Peter's discussing Old Testament prophets, prophets who prophesied the coming of a Messiah, the Messiah who would bring a new covenant, and there are people who say, well, the prophets wrote about the Messiah, but they didn't know it was the Messiah they were writing about. They just knew it was some mystical figure, but they didn't know anything about him. And they didn't understand their own prophecies. Well, if they didn't understand their own prophecies, then they weren't involved in the writing, were they? And here, Peter says, they made careful searches, inquiries. It describes diligently searching eagerly looking for information. But notice that he doesn't say that the prophets were inquiring to know the meaning of the Spirit's words. They weren't inquiring to understand their own prophecies. What were they doing? Verse 11. Inquiring to know what time or what kind of time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating as he was predicting the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. 
What were they inquiring to know? What time? I know this Messiah is coming. I know he's going to bring a new covenant. He's going to forgive all of his people. I know that. But when is this going to happen? Is this going to happen in our time? If you read 1 Peter, he says, no, this wasn't for them. This was not going to happen in their time. And he actually says, this was for you. What time? When will this happen? And then he asks, what kind of time? That's describing the circumstances. What's the world going to be like? In, from our perspective today, this is like asking, what time is Jesus returning? I know he's going to return. I know what scripture says he's going to do when he gets back. What I don't know is when. What kind of time is, what are the circumstances of his return? When Jesus comes back, what will the world be like? Will we finally have flying cars when Jesus gets back? Who will the president of the United States be? Will the United States even be around when he returns? What are the circumstances? Who is this Antichrist figure? What nation is he going to come out of? How is he going to show up? That's what they're inquiring to know. They understood clearly the meaning of the prophecies, but they did not receive detailed information about how and when those prophecies would be fulfilled. They didn't have all the implications or the significance of those prophecies and how those would work out in future generations. Does that make sense? Everybody with me? I'll close with this. Walter Kaiser. Theirs was not a search for the meaning of what they wrote. It was an inquiry into the temporal aspects of the subject, which, which went beyond what they wrote. God didn't lay out every single circumstance of how prophecies would be fulfilled but the author clearly understood what, the, what it meant, and you can clearly understand what it means, even if it doesn't answer every question you have. All right, that was a lot. Let's, let's go close in prayer. Father, we thank you for your word. Uh, we do thank you uh, that we have the ability to come and study your word, that you have written it in a language that we can understand, that we can go back and, and look to find what you intended in every verse and every word. And it's what you intended through a human author. You made it in a human author's voice so that we would be sure that we could understand it. And so we just, just ask that you would help us to, uh, to come to the text, to trust that you have inspired every word, and that we would see that every word comes from you. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen.